It is so good to be able to fellowship with brothers and sisters in the Lord and to, to gather on the first day of the week to do so. So give that final hug, handshake, and let's get into our time of teaching. It really is good to see each and every one of you, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we're so glad that uh, God has led you here and hope that uh, you will be encouraged, challenged, even edified. Uh, we are in part one of a short two-part series that I've titled uh, Restoration. And over the last two weeks, we looked at a theme of immorality, specifically sexual immorality, and looked at what is the Lord's teaching on these issues. And so today we transition from that topic of immorality to restoration. And then in March, April, and May, we will be looking at a 12-part, 13-part sermon series that's entitled Simply Thankful. Uh, I created this series about two years ago, but had to stop short, so I want to introduce in the spring, and we will be looking mostly at Old Testament passages of God's intervention in His people's lives and how there are so many things that you and I, on a daily basis, should be simply thankful to the Lord for. Whenever you are simply thankful, you are a person that acknowledges what God is doing in your life. It's very much like in our small groups, whenever you share those God moments, watching closely to see God's move in your life. And so excited about getting into the spring series because it'll finally be warmer, amen? 31 days till spring. Come on, March 20th. Oh, but, uh, and I got news for Justin. His chocolate pie gets trumped by her whatever pie. You know, she's good for me, Justin, so I'll take the Chick-fil-A right there with you. Restoration. We think we know it. We think we live it. But so often, we don't. We need restoration in our lives. There's two views, biblically, of restoration. What God does for you when He saves you, He restores you. He takes you from the pit... And sets you up in the high realm of spiritual blessing as his child. Then there is the restoration that others may need from you in your life. And that is something that we give as Christians to one another. If someone wrongs you. Because you are Christ's, as difficult as it might be, you keep no record of those wrongs. And you say only those things, not to tear down, but to build one another up. 
we encourage each other. We spur each other on in this difficult life that we live where Satan is attacking us from different angles and positions all the time where we fail each other. You need restoration from others in your life. And so often, we all fall short in that area. And so those two ideas are are what I want to weave together. Uh, Matthew texted me later last week and said, "What's, what's the big point of the message? And really the big point is, in our lives... We all sin. We all fail the Lord and each other at different times and in different ways. And we all need to be restored. Amen? We all need it. Without restoration by Jesus Christ in our lives, we're lost. We're we're doomed. It's hopeless. Without restoration in each other's lives, we're not doomed, we're not lost. But it can be hard. Restoration ties in with the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness and restoration cannot be separated. They are like wet on water. They go hand in hand. And so often, we say we forgive. We never restore. And you can't forgive someone if you don't restore that person. Forgiveness and restoration go together. So to transition from our last two sermons and the theme of immorality, and specifically sexual immorality, and to come into the restoration idea, we look at a passage of Scripture that Paul talks about beautifully in three verses to tie the two ideas together so that we transition from one to the other with a good biblical view. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is the theme of the last two weeks. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Pretty clear. If you are not restored, if you stay in the state of being a wrongdoer, you will not go to heaven. Do not be deceived. Don't let Satan deceive you. Don't deceive yourself. Don't let others deceive you. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what we talked about in those two weeks. Immorality and sexual immorality. Paul says, this sin in the lives of people is what 
separates them from God. Sin is dark. Sin is ugly. Sin is dirty. Sin is crippling. Sin is evil. And we see the degree of how evil sin is in our lives as individuals by what it cost God. Because of the sin of the world, of mankind, of you, of me, of us, Christ had to die as the atonement for sin. He had to go to the cross. He chose to go to the cross and to suffer on that cross to shed His blood so that He would take our punishment on Himself and that His blood could cleanse and make us spotless. Here is the darkness. Here is those that are not restored. Here are those that are still in sin. But then Paul says something happened. And he introduces it with the word but... And this is what some of you were. Now, really look at the were through this whole text. This is what I've just discussed, is what some of you were. It was a part of your past. But something happened. God came into your life through the Son, Jesus Christ, and did a spiritual work on your life, your heart, and your soul, and your mind. And change came because of the Lord. But you were washed, Paul says. Washed from what? Washed from what you previously were. Now you look back at that list. It's not an itemized list of everything. It's just sort of a a shotgun splatter of most big things. But there's a lot of things that's not on that list. But that's what you were. But you're not that anymore because you have been washed. This word washed is to be clean, to remove dirt is the idea, to take something away. The same word is used whenever Paul in Acts chapter 22, 16 talks about his conversion story. He talks and tells the people, I was on my way to Damascus to persecute Christians, to arrest them and put them in jail. But there was this 
bright light and I fell down and I was blinded and I heard a voice and it was the voice of Jesus. What shall I do, Lord? Paul says. Go into Damascus. Stay with Ananias. You will be told what to do. The company around him, they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't hear the voice. But they led Paul into Damascus to Ananias, where for three days he just prayed. Paul prayed, prayed, prayed. doesn't sound like he even ate. Just prayed. And then Ananias, after that third day, says to him, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use you to be his voice to both Jew and Gentile. And then he says, and what are you waiting for, Paul? Arise, get up, and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And we have this washing, the same word washing in Acts twenty two sixteen. But it is important, as this text will show us right here, that it's easy to miss, to understand the big picture. Some people think wrongly about baptism. They think that one day you just wake up and decide you're going to take a step and you're going to be baptized and that's going to make everything all right. That is such a shallow view of baptism. We must not think ever that we are the ones that initiate the decision to go and be baptized. We play a part in it. But you can see right here, Paul would have never contemplated baptism unless the Lord Jesus Christ intervened in his life. It is the divine intervention of Jesus Christ that struck Paul down at this point of life where he's doing evil things against God. No matter how pure his motive might have been to himself, he was doing evil things against God and God's people. Jesus strikes him down, blinds him, tells him what he must do, speaking through Ananias, get up, be baptized, washing away your sins, and call on the name of the Lord. Paul didn't make that decision on his own. Jesus Christ was the precursor, the initiator of the spiritual event that took place. That's why the Gospel of John will tell us no one comes to the Father unless the Son draws them. If you're the Lord's and if you've been 
baptized. It is because the Lord has gone before in your life and initiated the circumstances in your life convicting you to fulfill in obedience what He has commanded all people to do. You were washed because you were dirty. You were sinful. We cannot go past this text without each and every one of us at least being challenged to own how great an act Jesus Christ performed on our behalf to make us as spotless as a lamb, pure and holy. He has taken us from the pit of sin and ugliness and set us up on a pedestal and gave us a position as sons and daughters of God. And unless we understand what He has done and how He has gone on before us and how God uses the Holy Spirit to give us a rebirth from above, we miss it all. Praise God for His grace in your life. Praise God for your sensitivity to respond to His grace in your life. You were justified and sanctified. The word sanctified here is to be set apart, to be removed from profane or sinful things. You were washed, made clean, picked up, removed from what we discussed in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. And you belong to God. You're His. He's taken you out of that ugliness by forgiving you that sin And now you're His. Isn't that a beautiful truth? You are His. You are sanctified by God. And this word justified is to be just in God's sight. It is to declare that you are righteous. But yet the scriptures say that no one is righteous on their own merit. But whenever one comes into the cleansing power, sanctifying power, they are justified and made righteous in his sight. They are restored. Now watch here. All this took place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, say it with me, by. Now, the Greek word is in just like previously in, but it also can be by. And why is that so important? Paul is making the argument through the text that 
this happened because of the power of God. And by His Spirit, it was made possible. Not by you, not by your desire, not by your willingness. Yes, you were convicted. Yes, you received. Yes, you put, yes, you obeyed. But God set it all up to make it so. And that is why restoration by Jesus Christ is so valuably important to the believer. So we come to John 18. And through John 18, 19, and 21, it's the last few days of Jesus' life. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll talk about this more at the end of April when we talk about resurrection. But Jesus has taken his disciples to a place that he often took them to teach and to talk and to fellowship. And Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest He went with Jesus into the priest's courtyard. So here Jesus is with his disciples. They're on and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has betrayed Jesus, has gone into Gethsemane with a detachment of soldiers and religious leaders, and they've arrested Jesus. And they're taking him back to the high priest's father-in-law, Annas, to be questioned. And Peter, in this scene, steps out with his sword to protect Jesus and cuts off the ear of Malchus. Jesus says to Peter, put the sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has poured for me? Peter puts the sword away. Now, why that's important as we look through these three chapters is, you know, it's really a lot like us. There are times in our life that we are trying to defend Jesus, and sometimes we go about it the wrong way. But our hearts are true and our hearts are devoted and our hearts are strong. I love Jesus. I'm with you. They're trying to do something bad to you. And I'm going to risk my life and I'm going to pull out my sword against these trained soldiers. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus puts it back on and says, no, Peter. Then they bind Jesus. And they take him away. And this is where Simon Peter and John, the beloved disciple, follow Jesus at a distance. John knew the high priest. And he was able to go into the courtyard. Peter had to wait outside the door. But then we find out, Peter waited outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. Now Peter's in the courtyard. 
of the high priest. And there's this fire going because it's cold outside. And they're all warming themselves by the fire. Some standing, some sitting. But Peter is with those that are against Jesus. By himself. And John is with the high priest. And Jesus is being questioned. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? The servant girl asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. Now that's what is known in Scripture as that first denial. Uh, Some translations have disown. But, But this word really is the idea of to push away and separate oneself from a thing or a person. I don't know him. I'm separating myself. I've, I've never known this person. or I've never been there. I, I am disowning. I, I am not accepting this person in my life. That is the flavor of this word as he denies knowing Jesus. I am not. Now watch here. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And I may read a little bit into this, but I try to step back and think, like, if I was Peter in this situation, what would my emotional state be? I've just cut off the ear of an individual because I tried to defend Jesus. Now I'm finally in the courtyard and I'm with people that I know that don't like Jesus and they're questioning me. Fear begins to build in Peter's life. Fear of what's going to happen to him. They've arrested Jesus. There's trouble. And Peter, I would think, would be scared. But he's with all these individuals that just doesn't love the Lord. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warm himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. There's denial number two. There is the disowning. And in our society, we would think, well, he just, you know, it's denial. This is, it's not that big a deal. It is that big a deal to deny Jesus, to disown Jesus, is a big deal. And that's what Peter has now done for the second time. And we might stand back and be able to sympathize and understand, because we're flesh too, but it's a big deal regardless. To deny the Lord, to deny Jesus in your life, is a big deal. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Well, you see, Luke tells us a little bit of the story about why the rooster crowed. Peter, in that moment of feeling strong before the Lord and love and devoted to Jesus, Jesus has told them, before this night's out... You're all going to fall away on account of me. And he quotes Zechariah. 
And he says, I will strike the shepherd's hill. And the flock will be scattered. Satan will do his worst to Jesus at the cross and his disciples will scatter. It will be on account of what is happening to Jesus and their response and reaction. And they're going to fall away. Now, fall away doesn't mean to be lost. It means to deny. It means to disown. And then Peter, in that text of Luke, says, if everyone else falls away on your account, I won't, even if I have to go and die with you. And then all the disciples chimed in and said, us too. Have you ever felt in your heart that you really do love the Lord and you want to be devoted to Him and you want to honor Him and you want to be loyal to Him and then you do something so sinful, stupid, and your heart is immediately convicted. I hope I'm not the only one in the room. Because there's another passage in the Gospels that tell us when the rooster crowed that Jesus looked at Peter and Peter looked at Jesus. And that moved Peter to go through the door outside the courtyard where he wept. He knew that he had failed Jesus. He knew that he had denied him three times. He knew that he had disowned him. You see, Jesus, he knows our hearts. That's why the essence of Scripture says to God's people, your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. He knows who we are. He knows what we are. We can make all kinds of claims. And then we fail. I don't think it takes a lot of imagination because the text says he went out and wept bitterly to know how he felt. I just hope that whenever we find ourselves in those times of denying Jesus by our actions, that we have that moment of his eyes meeting our eyes and that we don't just see it as, oh, it's just a mistake. But there's a deep conviction that I've let sin that I've been forgiven of, creep back in my life and have power over me, and I have failed the Lord. We all do. But do we have the conviction? 
Is there a bitter weeping over our sin that there was for Peter? Been with Jesus three years. Saw things that you and I only get to read about. We would think, oh, Peter, he's going to have faith that's so outstanding. He's been there. He's heard. He's seen. And that's something said for you and the rest of believers throughout this world. When Jesus appears three times after his resurrection to his disciples, one of those appearances is with Thomas. Who wasn't there at the first appearance of Jesus. And Thomas said to others, Unless I put my hand or finger in his side and see the wounds, I'm not believing that he's resurrected from the dead. Jesus appears to Thomas. Put your hands, your fingers in my side. Stop believing. You believe because you've seen. But there's coming a people of God that will be so blessed because they believe without seeing. We've not seen, but we've read. We've not seen, but we've been convicted in the Spirit that it's true. The rooster crows at the third denial. Jesus looks to Peter. Peter looks to Jesus, and he goes out and weeps bitterly because he has failed Jesus. And so do we. But boy, aren't we thankful that we have a Savior that doesn't leave it there. So everyone who acknowledges me, this word acknowledge there is the idea, the literal word, confesses. Whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. See, it's not the idea that, yeah, I believe in Jesus, or I believe Jesus is real. It is that with, I confess Jesus. It is that with, He's mine. I believe He is who He says He is. He is my Savior, my Redeemer. He died for me. That's what I'm confessing. That's what I'm acknowledging. Not just His existence. I'm confessing the relationship I have with Him, that I've been washed, that I've been sanctified, that I've been justified by the Spirit. It's in His power. That's what I'm confessing. Is that what we confess before men? Jesus says, when a person has that lifestyle, that belief, that spirit, Jesus is going to confess your name in heaven. He's going to acknowledge you before the Father. You can have all the sin in your life, but the Lord's grace trumps that sin. And because that grace is so mighty, so powerful, because of what He's done for us, we don't take it for granted and say, well, since there's so much grace... I'm going to go live like a hellion and do what I want because ultimately God's got to save me. If we're thinking like that, we might have to really question, have we been washed? Have we been sanctified? Have we been justified? We don't think like that. 
We're set apart, Lord. I love you. I know what you've done for me. I know what you're doing for me in my sin in this world. After I'm saved, your blood is continually cleansing me. First John. But whoever denies me, whoever disowns me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Confessing Jesus in this world is something we all better be doing. Because if we're not confessing, I think probably by default, we're denying. Knowing where you stand last week I had several of you in person through texts and emails say, really appreciate your boldness on this sexual immorality and stuff. And you know, I appreciate it. But what I want you to remember me by, and it might be just an ever slight distinction, is not the boldness, but the humble boldness. You see, we can be bold and be screaming out everybody's sin and you're going to hell and you're wrong, and I just don't want any part of that. I don't want to be any part of the guy that's carrying the sign on the street corner telling everybody they're doomed and lost and going to hell. But a, a humble boldness means the idea that you know who you are. You're like, Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. I, I don't even deserve to be used by God, but he's using me, so I, I've got to share God's truth. But I want to do it in a humble boldness. The humble part is the compassion. It is, I want to see a change in someone's life. I want them to be faced with the truth. I want to be remembered for a humble boldness. If you aren't confessing the name of Jesus in your life, why not? Are you ashamed, embarrassed, uncomfortable? How will the Lord use you or I? He'll use someone. He'll get it done some way. But how can we be used by God in a positive way if we're not willing in our realms of influence to confess His name? If I'm not willing to be used by God to say, if you're having sexual relationships with someone that is not your spouse, you are in sin. How will that person ever know? Please confess the name of Jesus as He is yours. He is your master You are His servant because you'll never regret it. It pleases the Lord and it will please the Father. Now, just real quickly, we come up now to John chapter 21. 
Jesus has resurrected. And this is one of his appearances. Uh, They've been out fishing. Peter wanted to go fishing. Probably didn't know what to do with himself. Jesus is gone, but now he's resurrected. Jesus is on the shoreline. And they're out in their boats, about 100 yards out, coming in. They've caught nothing, and Jesus says, come have breakfast with me. I just love that line. Come have breakfast with me. Could you imagine having breakfast with Jesus? And he's cooking it. I mean, you're the cook of all cooks, my brother. But I'd like to try what Jesus makes once in a while. Right, Norbert? You would too. He's He's cooking over coals of fire, bread and fish. And Peter, there's old Peter, 100 yards out. That's Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat. Now, I don't know 100 yards out if he has to swim a little bit, but I imagine Peter could swim. He was a fisherman. And he makes his way towards Jesus and Jesus, in the meantime, is telling them to cast down their net, and they catch 153 fish, and they finally get to shore. And he says, hey, bring some of your fish. I mean, it's just a beautiful story. And they have breakfast with Jesus. No one dared ask, who are you? They knew. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? You can read commentaries and scholars that are up at ivory towers all day long and get a thousand different views of, do you love me more than these? What is that? Is he talking about the other disciples? What's he talking about? Do you love me more than these? And I know it could be maybe anything, but but for me, and this is just me, this is another thus saith the Lord, it seems to me in context, like the bread I'm giving you, the fish I've cooked, I've, I've let you guys catch this large load you couldn't even pull in the boat, you drug it ashore in your nets. Do, do you love me more than these? And maybe that included, the, do you love me more than John? Do you, do you love me? See, he's, this is Peter encountering Jesus after he's failed and disowned him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Restoration is taking place. We're not going to see the word Jesus forgave Peter. Not going to see that word. But oh, is it implied. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know the hearts of mankind. You know I love you. Restoration move number one. Feed my lambs. Use your life to feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Restoration move number two. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. It's like the Lord's not believing what I'm saying. It, it like convicted his spirit. I, yes, I love you. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my We are blessed that when we sin and fail the Lord as Christians, that His blood continually cleanses us. And I believe because of the Spirit that God has caused to live in His child, that when we do sin and fail Him, He convicts us. Why do you look at that? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why, when that person tried to speak and say hello to you, did you not even turn and look at them? You're mine. Why can't you restore in your lives those that have failed you. That's what Jesus did. And church, believers, unbelievers here today, if Jesus can and is willing to restore Peter, he is willing to restore you. And whenever you are being convicted, it is Jesus initiating. He is the precursor. He is knocking on the door of your heart. Open it up and be washed. Be sanctified. Be justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Peter, very truly, I tell you, you're restored, Peter, and you're going to serve my people, Peter, but there's some hard things coming. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. You did the things you wanted to do because your life was your own and I wasn't a part of your life. But now, because I'm a part of your life, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus led Peter and often will lead us to where we do not want to go, but it's all for His glory. Specifically, 
Case in point, where is he going? Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Because we are restored, let us hear the same truth that Jesus spoke to Peter in our own lives. Follow the Lord. Follow Him. Put Him first. Love Him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your body. No matter what He takes you through, it brings Him glory. Lean on Him. Trust Him. Serve Him. But let Him restore you. If you're unsaved, you need restored. And it begins by confessing your sin, repenting or turning away from that sin, acknowledging and confessing Jesus' name before whoever will listen or whoever is present, to be baptized in water, often referred to as a watery grave, Put under, Romans 6 says, as Paul writes, and lifted and resurrected out of the water to symbolize Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And with the Spirit of God that lives in you, in all the successes and failures, because you're going to have them, to move forward, Following Jesus. God bless each and every one of you in this battle, this spiritual battle of life that you continue to follow Jesus. I am restored by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am proud that Jesus Christ is my Lord and the Messiah, and the only name by which anyone can be saved. Give Him the glory in your life. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, as our worship team comes out to lead us in worship, and we sing this song with this resurrecting theme, I just pray that each one of us that have been resurrected by Your power will sing it with deep, deep emotion and belief. And Father, if there's anyone here that has not received by faith your Son, I pray that they will take the step at your prompting like Paul and Peter did. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let us worship and sing together.